You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us on the south coast. The snow has stopped, at least for now. The wind has died down and the temperature is creeping up. But it doesn't mean our trouble is over. Concerns are now shifting to the cleanup and new potential problems. Our Jill Bennett is live in North Burnaby tonight. And Jill, there are fears now about flooding. Sophie, no matter where you are in Metro Vancouver or the Fraser Valley, take a few steps off a main road and you will find huge piles of snow on the streets, on the sidewalks and on the buildings. The big question now is where will it all go when it melts? Trying to stay on top of things in case more snow falls, this North Shore resident isn't too worried. Nah, we're going to be fine. As long as it, uh, as long as it's under a heavy freeze tonight, that would be a disaster. There is still plenty of evidence of the heavy dose of winter that fell on Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley, leaving everything under a thick blanket of snow. While many are still shoveling the sidewalks, in the city of Vancouver, the focus has shifted to deal with what comes next, the melt. With all of this snow that's on the ground, we are going to expect uh, some pooling water. It could be flooding in some areas. Uh, at this point, the forecasts aren't leading us to think we're going to have a huge flooding event. Part of the cleanup focus now is catch basins. While some have been cleared, many others are still buried deep beneath the snow, making more work for crews trying to stop potential flooding. They're not only shoveling uh, curb ramps and bus stops, but they're also out there and they're cleaning uh, catch basins uh, with every street that they go to as well. There's also the issue of all that snow on the roof. Getting up on a sloped roof that has got snow on it is a recipe for disaster. It's the last thing you want to do. But if a home or business has a flat roof, there are ways to help ensure it isn't damaged under the weight of snow and ice. And even if you've got a residential house that's got a flat roof or even a deck that doesn't allow proper drainage, you need to make sure that the drains are clear and not frozen. As for all the vehicles on Metro Vancouver streets that haven't moved since the snow started falling, crews say it's really only a problem if they are left on the busier arterial routes. And getting back to those catch basins, city officials say if you're a homeowner and you have an idea where your catch basin is, please do go out, clear the snow away. If you don't really know, look for a dip in the snow that can give you a hint. And if you have no clue, have some fun. That's a direct quote. And dig the snow along the curb until you find it. If you do, it's a big help to city crews. Back to you guys. Well, that sure does sound like fun, Jill. <laughs> Thanks for that. Hours of entertainment. All right, this latest blast of winter and the travel chaos that ensued has some wondering whether or not lower mainland cities need to consider investing more in snow removal equipment. Jordan Armstrong has a look at the current resource levels and why some believe it really comes down to working smarter. There are two guarantees when it snows on the lower mainland. Drivers will spin out and freak out about the snow-clearing efforts. A little bit disappointed with the city, though, for not plowing any of the downtown streets. They know how to raise taxes, you know, but uh, they're not very efficient at, uh, you know, putting the people to work. The city of Vancouver budgets about $4 million annually for snow and ice removal. Compare that to Calgary, which obviously sees a lot more snow and spends a lot more to clear it. $40 million 
or 10 times the budget of Vancouver. This type of weather is incredibly inconvenient and it really disrupts the lives of many Metro Vancouverites. But then at the same time, it occurs pretty infrequently here. While this councillor is not calling for a surge in snow spending, she is suggesting the city adjust its priorities. We've seen how much the dedicated equipment can clear the bike lanes very quickly. So can we do the same for pedestrian? Um, and to the question around, we only have it a couple times a year. Well, we're expecting another potential dump on Friday night. Um, and we know we may have with climate change, more extreme weather conditions. And what about the highways? Main Road, the contractor responsible for most in the region, has a fleet of 24 snow plows, and they feel that's adequate. The snow is coming down very fast uh, through some of these, these uh, snow events. It's hard to keep up with those, those bursts of snow, but we're out there keeping up as best we can. We can't be everywhere at once. But maybe the biggest complaint should be with drivers like this, ones who lack proper tires and common sense. Should winter tires be mandatory, not just on highways, but in cities as well? It's certainly something I'll be asking ICBC about, uh, uh, following some of what I saw on the road uh, over the last couple days, and I'm sure a lot of British Columbians would nod along with that idea. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. And meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us now. Christy, are we getting more snow in recent years or does it just feel like it? I think it just feels like it. It's amazing how quickly we forget when it comes to the weather. So just to give you perspective, look back at the last 10 years, data at YVR for December, January, and February. And of the last 10 years, seven of them each had at least one major snow event. The other three, by the way, were very strong El Nino years where we don't typically get much snow. And then uh, six of the 10 years had several snow events. So our season so far actually is fairly typical. Now, we have more snow on the way. There's a band pushing out of the phrase Valley right now, and we have another one potentially headed for the Metro Vancouver region right during the commuting hours or right before. This band will slowly shift towards the east, but I'll show you the timeline when I get back. But the main thing that I want to point out is we could see another five centimeters of snow in Metro Vancouver right in the commuting hours. Just keeps coming. All right, thanks, Christy. We'll get the details later. And just a heads up, if you're a fan of the seawall, the section between Siwash Rock and the Lionsgate Bridge is shut down due to the risk of falling ice. The rest of the pathway is going to stay open. Last year, the park board was forced to close the same stretch from February to mid-March because of winter conditions. All right, changing gears now and another victory for the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Today, a Supreme Court judge dismissed B.C.'s last kick at the can to stop the project. It involved provincial legislation to regulate the flow of heavy oil across B.C.'s border, and it failed. Keith Baldry has reaction. The court, la cour. The ruling was swift, unanimous, and to the point. The B.C. government's final attempt to control the Trans Mountain Pipeline was stopped dead in its tracks. We are all of the view to dismiss the appeal for the unanimous reasons of the Court of Appeal for British Columbia. The Supreme Court of Canada wasted little time in rejecting the B.C. NDP government's argument that it should control what flows through that pipeline. The B.C. government wanted to stop the flow of bitumen, but that was clearly offside constitutionally. The court ruling was no surprise to many, and the opposition B.C. Liberals said a lot of tax dollars were spent on what became a useless venture. We got information today saying it cost $1 million to go through the B.C. Court of Appeal, and that likely means another million dollars to go to the Supreme Court of Canada, and it was a totally futile exercise. But B.C.'s Attorney General defended trying to craft new law. 
It's obviously a disappointing decision. Uh, certainly, um, caring about uh, our land and water and uh, and our economy uh, and the impacts of, uh, of uh, potential spills of not just bitumen, but potentially other substances that the province would want to regulate. A big win for Alberta today at the Supreme Meanwhile, the reaction in Alberta was, no surprise, one of relief. Premier Jason Kenney sending out this tweet calling the court ruling a big victory, and his energy minister also said it was a big win for that province. Today's Supreme Court decision is great news for Alberta. It's great news for Canada, and it's great news for an industry that's been struggling to get its product to international markets. All right, Keith is live in Victoria with more on the decision. So what happens now, Keith? Yeah, well, the pipeline project is not out of the woods yet in, the, in terms of the court system. There's still one more challenge it's facing in federal court of appeal. Indigenous groups arguing First Nations were not adequately consulted during the environmental assessment process. Uh, there was a three-day hearing on that matter last month. No timeline yet when the court of appeal will rule that. Whatever happens there will likely go to the Supreme Court of Canada again. But so far, the pipeline project has won a heck of a lot more cases in court than it's lost. Uh, so who knows where the final one's going to go. But this is a major victory for the for the pipeline, the owners of the pipeline, which is the federal government, and Alberta, of course. All right, thanks for that. Keith Baldry in Victoria. The Bank of Montreal is taking full responsibility tonight for an incident at one of its branches that resulted in an Indigenous man and his 12-year-old granddaughter in handcuffs. The pair was simply trying to open an account, and their detention set off a wave of backlash. Nadia Stewart explains why the apology, while earnest, still falls short for some. For the first time since we learned an Indigenous man and his granddaughter were handcuffed at a BMO branch in Vancouver. Our mistake, don't get me wrong, our mistake was to make that phone call. Ernie Johansson, the bank's head of personal and business banking, is publicly apologizing, describing the events of December 20th, 2019 as a mistake they deeply regret. We take full accountability for the fact that someone made a phone call and set off the trigger of these events. Maxwell Johnson and his 12-year-old granddaughter were detained and handcuffed after someone from the bank called Vancouver police saying there was a discrepancy with Johnson's ID which led to suspicions of fraud. BMO admits the situation was poorly handled but deny racism had anything to do with it. How do you respond to concerns of racism? We have reviewed this situation. We made a mistake. We have gone through and looked at this very carefully over what the past What did you discover when you looked at and it? And when we just looked at this, we cannot characterize this in the way that you are characterizing the situation. It's still unclear why staff were unable to validate Johnson's ID, given he's banked with them since 2014. The person who called police is no longer at the branch. Johansson would not say what specific policies justified the decision to alert VPD, but they are launching an Indigenous Advisory Council to help improve internal practices through the lens of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Kanakobar Indian Band Chief Patrick Mitchell is, so far, the only member from B.C. There are ways that in Canada that we are expected to be treated, and that's what we want to see moving forward. News of the council is not sitting well with Johnson or the Heitzek Nation. In a statement, they say the announcement is, quote, marred by a continuing denial by BMO that an incident of racial profiling took place at one of its branches adding the council, quote, feels very much like a reactive gesture or public relations effort. We're told Johnson and Heidsuck Nation will have more to say in the days to come. Nadia Stewart, Global News. 
A rather frosty reception for the premier at the annual truck loggers convention. The industry is struggling and a lengthy labor dispute is only adding to the misery. And while John Horgan came with cash in hand, Richard Zussman tells us why forestry communities are concerned. It's too little, too late. It's an industry in crisis. A crisis many in this room are looking to Premier John Horgan to solve. There's not much that I can say to you that's going to give you comfort other than that we are indeed in this together. The forestry sector has seen thousands of jobs disappear and a labour dispute between Western Forest Products and the United Steelworkers continues to cripple the industry on Vancouver Island. Horgan trying to provide some relief. And I'm happy to announce today that $5 million has been made available to help contractors who equipment, whose equipment is at risk because of this labour dispute. But with an industry and communities hard hit over the last year, there was not much celebrating the government's announcement. I certainly appreciate uh, that the Premier did come to the TLA to, uh, uh, to say a few words, um, but they were too few. Uh, we're certainly hoping for something a little bit more substantial. Leaders in the forestry sector have been meeting in Vancouver this week. There was frustration the Premier didn't take any questions from the crowd and the $5 million is coming too late. For the people on the island, uh, you know, I, I think there was false hopes raised that the Premier would be able to deliver something and he failed to deliver anything for the people that are hurting. It was just last September when some of these same workers arrived in Vancouver as part of a truck convoy. Not much has changed since then and communities are struggling. I can't even begin to tell you the the magnitude of um, the emotional impact that it's had, the business impact. We have businesses that are on the verge of closing down. Horgan agreeing the strike has gone on too long and more support will be coming from Victoria. But for these people desperate for help, that can't come soon enough. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Right now, though, more questions tonight about recent actions by conservation officers when it comes to helping orphaned wildlife. It follows two concerning incidents involving emaciated bear cubs. Ramina Dea explains what happened and why there are calls for changes to current protocol. A mix of fruit, rice, and the senior special. Always the strawberry one. <laughs> this is how you rehabilitate an emaciated bear cub. He's very, very shy, um, but he is also a little bit grumpy. Looks comfortable. He's uh, a lot more active now. A massive improvement from when an officer with the Conservation Service dropped the orphan cub off just days ago. The biggest concern I had would have been the fact that he was exposed to the elements and oversedated. These issues combined can be deadly. Staff with Critter Care Wildlife Society upset. The 40-pound cub wasn't wrapped in a blanket or insulated for the drive. The temperature, minus 9. I'm just very, I would say, frustrated with the way that policies uh, the CEOs are following aren't helping the wildlife that much. The incident comes days after another abandoned bear needed rescuing. The Anmore couple who helped initially under investigation for tampering with wildlife. The deputy chief of the Conservation Service later apologized. The COS 
too busy for an on-camera interview, but in a statement says it understands the public's desire to help wildlife. Officers are trained in the proper handling and care of animals, which includes guidance from our provincial wildlife veterinarian on the safe transportation of bear cubs. Critter Care says the conservation services policies are outdated and it's time for change. Over-sedation and the transportation of animals in the cold, a growing concern. I implore the Conservation Officer Service to look at their uh, policies and procedures and make them stricter, make them tighter, make it so everyone does it the same way and in the correct way that's humane for the animals. Romina Dea, Global News. A disabled Surrey man needed help during this bout of frigid weather and asked the government for a widely available emergency grant to buy winter clothes. He was turned down for the money until Global News started asking why. Catherine Urquhart reports. Walking with a cane is, is incredible. Got to learn your balance all over again. 63-year-old Carl Peltier struggles to get around following a heart attack and a broken back. Now, the horribly cold weather. You don't have a winter coat. No, no, but that's, that's, that's okay. On Wednesday, the disabled man asked for help at the Ministry of Social Development and Poverty Reduction Office in Newton, requesting a $100 crisis supplement to buy a coat and boots. After filling out paperwork, he was told to return later that day. I go back there and then they told me they couldn't help me and that my best bet would be to uh, go to the nearest shelter. I apparently, I didn't give them a good enough reason. Global News asked the Ministry of Social Development and Poverty Reduction why Peltier's application was rejected. They wouldn't say, citing privacy laws. If any other day to help somebody, this would be the day to do it. The Surrey man said friends would be helping him out. Then, hours after we started asking questions, Peltier received a phone call from the ministry. His request for a $100 crisis supplement now approved. Peltier says he can now pick up the coat and boots he put on hold at the Salvation Army store. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. The property crime wave hitting businesses isn't limited to Vancouver. As Global's Brad McLeod reports, things are so bad in one Victoria district, businesses are considering some costly measures to improve safety. Downtown business owners are getting more of their stock snatched by thieves. They feel like they're on their own. Good, how are you? Lily Butterfield has been at it for nearly five years. She says winter months are usually slow, but business is brisk for shoplifters. Has probably increased a bit um, through months that normally it doesn't happen in. And the issue has cost Lily thousands of dollars. She's had to install a security camera, buy tags for her clothes, and it's something other businesses in the area have had to do as well. Businesses say criminals are becoming more brazen because there are so few consequences. So a group of Lower Johnson business owners are getting together Friday to discuss taking action by hiring private security. They will be funding it. We just provide the, the logistical support. So we've been here for going on 28 years. Paying for security is something this restaurant on Lojo has been doing for six years for the protection of staff and customers. The need, uh, especially in the summer, well, and in the winter now, it turns out, uh, for some added security because the police do not respond. Vic PD just put its 2020 budget proposal to Victoria City Council Tuesday, and it was essentially approved 
with no new officers to be hired. But Police Chief Del Manick says, if approved, they will hire four new special municipal constables for a one-year pilot. So these are trained civilians who are unarmed, who can help the police. They can come in and they can help complete administrative tasks. Manick says this could free up officers to deal with more calls. Business owners are frustrated. They already pay for police protection through their business tax and now might pay more for private security. And extra money is not something some of these small businesses have. You know, when somebody steals from me, I, I'm taking a loss and it feels like you're stealing from my house. Brad McLeod, Global News, Victoria. Well, for only the third time in history, the impeachment trial of the President of the United States is underway. U.S. Senators taking an oath today to be impartial during the trial of Donald Trump at a time when politics in America has never been more partisan or divided. Tonight, history in the Senate. President Trump on trial. The Senate will come to order. House Democrats preparing to prosecute their case on charges of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. In all of this, President Trump acted in a manner contrary to his trust as president. Chief Justice John Roberts arriving at the Capitol, where he'll preside over the trial, administering the oath to the entire Senate. Now, the jury. Do you solemnly swear? That in all things appertaining to the trial of the impeachment of Donald John Trump, President of the United States, now pending, you will do impartial justice according to the Constitution and laws, so help you God. One by one, senators signing the oath book, promising fairness in an era of bitter partisanship. The critical showdown over whether to call witnesses and admit more evidence is likely at least a week away. Democrats demanding at least four witnesses, including former National Security Advisor John Bolton. Do you think the Senate is capable of conducting a fair trial? If the United States Senate cannot conduct a fair trial, then we can talk about the the beginning of the end of our democracy and our system of justice. Can there be a fair trial without witnesses? Uh, Yeah, the same witnesses they're saying they need today were available in the House. Uh, You know, if you want a witness and the witness was available to you and you chose not to call them, don't blame me. If four Republicans join with Democrats and demand witnesses, the trial could last for weeks. The president late today. Well, I think it should go very quickly. It's a hoax, a phony hoax put out by the Democrats so they can try and win an election. More heart-stopping video from Syria tonight and a warning it will be disturbing to some people. It shows the desperate rescue of a child after an airstrike. Members of a civil defense group race to the site of the strike and for several frantic minutes dig through the rubble of a home with their bare hands. After what seems like an eternity, some of the debris moves and they pull out a young girl who is covered in dust. There's no information about the child's family. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights says Russian warplanes carried out the strike. Five countries, including Canada, have agreed to pressure Iran to cooperate in the investigation of how Iranian forces mistakenly shot down Flight 752. Canada hosted a meeting of foreign ministers in London today. The government's naming five key areas where they want action from Iran. One candle 
five flames, one for each country whose citizens died on Flight 752, except for Iran. That's because this meeting involved the five foreign ministers from the countries who want to hold Iran to account, joined by their counterpart from the Netherlands. We have unfortunately a lot of experience in dealing with the aftermath of such a terrible disaster. Referring to the MH17 tragedy, in which the Netherlands led an international investigation that found Russian-backed rebels downed the Malaysian passenger jet in 2014. But Iran has admitted it shot down Flight 752. The question now is how it cooperates, beginning with the victims and families. First, full and unhindered access for officials to and within Iran to provide consular services. The countries also want bodies repatriated according to relatives' wishes, a difficult issue given that Iran does not recognize dual citizenship. Canada's François-Philippe Champagne insists technical and criminal investigations must involve international experts from outside Iran and that if Iran is found liable, it must shoulder the financial burden. We would expect them to obviously um, uh, undertake discussion with obviously the uh, grieving nations with respect to compensation. Champagne says these five nations will judge Iran by its actions. Iranian officials were certainly watching today, but the big question is, will they really cooperate? And what's in it for them if they decide to do so? Redmond Shannon, Global News, London. Well, it was Prince Harry's turn today to step out in public for the first time since the Queen signed off on his decision to step back from royal life. The Duke of Sussex took part in an announcement at Buckingham Palace this morning regarding next year's Rugby League World Cup. This is expected to be Harry's final scheduled engagement before he and wife Meghan begin a period of transition into their new roles. In Health Matters tonight, consultations have begun on one of the most sensitive and controversial issues in medical care assisted dying. As Linda Aylesworth reports, the federal government is rewriting its law after part of it was struck down in court. When medical assistance in dying, or MAID, became law in Canada in 2016, many aspects of the complicated topic were covered by the bill. In particular... A fundamental aspect of that law was the end-of-life criterion, which basically meant that it was restricted to people who we're at the end of their life and we're going to pass away anyway. But a few months ago, the Superior Court of Quebec heard the cases of Nicole Gladue and Jean Touchon, who wanted the right to doctor-assisted deaths even though they weren't dying. I don't want to die. I want to stop the... the uh, uh, to, 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 I want to stop the sufferings. The ruling? The Quebec Superior Court has said that that part of the law is unconstitutional. What the court has told us um, is that that's a bit too narrow. There might be other people who are suffering uh, from, from grievous and, and irremediable conditions that aren't near the end of their life. And so the federal ministers of justice and disability inclusion were in Vancouver as part of an eight-city cross-Canada tour asking experts on the subject for input. Are there uh, points of consensus that already exist in Canadian society that we could move on quickly? quickly because the court order deadline is March 11th. Not much time to rewrite such a complex law.
It has a legal meaning, but in the medical world, it doesn't. It's, it, you know, it doesn't really help medical practitioners or nurse practitioners in determining eligibility. The trouble is with the law, by providing a right to one person, you may create vulnerabilities of others. They're also asking the public to participate in an online questionnaire. You'll find it on the Department of Justice Canada homepage. Speak up. We're listening. Uh, this is an opportunity to be heard. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Students and faculty at UBC finally have a chance today to revive an annual tradition, the campus-wide snowball fight. It was originally scheduled for yesterday, but had to be cancelled, ironically, because of the heavy snow. Students and staff say the wait was worth it, though, because snow conditions today were perfect. And coming up right after the forecast, how dogs like this one are helping save animals caught in Australia's devastating wildfires. Very cool. Mm -hmm. All right, meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us now with a look at what's coming <clears throat> next. Christy? It just won't let up, will it? No. <laughs> Keeps on coming. Yes, yeah, so we had a bad move across Metro Vancouver through the Fraser Valley through the afternoon hours. There was a risk of freezing rain, but I didn't see any reports of it, and it has now pushed out. But uh, here's a quick look at the temperatures. It's still very cold out through the Fraser Valley, and we're seeing temperatures above zero in Metro Vancouver, parts of southern Vancouver Island as well. Metro Vancouver, though, I'm expecting it to refreeze overnight. So any melt that you saw uh, happen today, watch for icy conditions tomorrow. And we talked about the potential for snow, which I'll show you in a second, whereas likely it will stay below, above freezing and through uh, the southern Vancouver Island region. So these are the pulses. So this is instability, pockets of snow that move across the region. And those pockets have the ability of producing quite a bit of snow. If they're quite unstable, they can be pretty intense and bring a fair amount of snow to a very localized area. So the snow will develop overnight while you're asleep. Parts of Vancouver Island could see it in Metro Vancouver as well. But I'm concerned right during the morning commute, it may intensify across Metro Vancouver and then linger through the morning hours before it pushes out late morning. So certainly more another wallop on the way. Here's how much snowfall we could see it looks like the hardest hit region could be metro vancouver likely two to five centimeters but there's a chance some localized areas could see more and not as much for uh, vancouver island or sorry for fraser valley but for vancouver island i want to highlight then friday night we have a chance of more snow friday night into saturday morning also northern regions cold and sunny across the south lots of sunshine for you as well uh, temperatures are climbing a little bit but still below freezing and again we have the potential for snow tomorrow morning easing to shower more snow potentially Saturday morning, but generally as we head into the next few days, we are going to warm up. I'm just going to leave you with this photo. It is a cowboy hat from West Vancouver. <laughs> Keith Fenton sent us that. Wow. That looks this cool. Sculpture. That Thanks. is somebody's barbecue covered in snow. That's what I'm saying. Is that what it was? Yes? Okay, I knew it. All right, in the never-ending battle to save wildlife caught in Australia's brush fires, humans are getting some help. Help from animals like Taylor a four-year-old English Springer Spaniel that is trained to find koalas. He can smell their fur or their droppings and help find the animals that are hurt. Taylor can work yeah. even in tough conditions like smoke and high winds. So far, Taylor has found eight animals. That's and that, that, was, that was a little koala up in the top of that Way tree. Up Way up in the tree. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Well done, Taylor. Okay. It's amazing. We don't have that sense, right? Mm -hmm. Like, have you ever? Koala? Yeah, have you ever no. walked and went? 
That's koala. <laughs> I know a koala if I smell it. koalas in the Pacific Northwest? No, there aren't. I remember when they, years ago, they hated Qantas. The koalas hated Qantas? Remember that commercial? No. Bring I it back for Satabri. Yeah. All right, all right. Sorry. All right, Squire's here. Yes, I am. Canucks are finally back home. Yes. And the road Just trip wasn't hideous. I mean, it started badly. Then they mm-hmm. won two games. And, of course, they lost in Winnipeg. We'll have more on that Winnipeg game because quite a bit came out of that. Uh, the Canucks are home. They're playing Arizona tonight. Oh, guess who's back? Who's back? Brandon Sutter. Brandon Sutter. Sutter. He's back. <laughs> uh, from injury, yes. Uh, I should have I should have rehearsed that with you. <laughs> and you you could have. I don't. Have, I'm sitting. On I know the you're, you're out on that one. one. I know you. you. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob Markstrom will start in goal. Uh, the playoff race in the Western Conference looks like one of those NASCAR races where all the cars are bunched together and tailgating each other. One mistake and you can spin out. But if you stay on the line, the others might crash around you. Uh, the Coyotes are first in the Pacific Division. Actually, I think they're now tied for first. I'll tell you about the other game in a moment. Uh, the Canucks are fourth, but Vancouver is only three points back with two games in hand. The Canucks are close, and that's what they were hoping for at the start of the season. JT Miller spins to get away from Suter. Passes one back. Here's Troy Stetcher with a shot. He scores! With 35 games to go, the Canucks are right in the thick of the playoff race. This is where they wanted to be, playing meaningful games that can vault them into the postseason for the first time in five seasons and provide the first real test for this team's young core. You know, our young guys are learning on the fly a little bit. Our young players are our most skilled players. There's no secret about that. And uh, when the stakes get higher as the season goes on, the games get harder. And uh, I got full confidence in our guys that they're going to be able to handle it and, and they're going to grow from year to year to become players that can win at that time of the year. This is why we play the game. We want to play. We want to be in the playoffs. We want to make it. And these are really important points. And I think the team that uh, you know is most consistent and, and wins uh, and wins the important games is going to get in. It's stolen back by Besser. Dishes off. Tanev. Besser shoots. He scores. The Canucks have shown a resiliency this season that bodes well for a young team trying to make a breakthrough. They bounced back after two ugly efforts in Florida to salvage their recent five-game road trip and have shown a fighting spirit all season long. I think we have a belief where um, if we get behind in the game that uh, we can utilize our fans to our advantage and uh, kind of build momentum shift after shift. And uh, there's been no quit in this team all year, and there's always been a belief in it, within this room and in each other, and I think that's translated onto the ice. Even if you lose a couple games coming down the stretch that are must-win games, I mean, I think that it doesn't matter. I think whoever can stay even keel and stick with their game plan and really bear down and find ways to win, I think is how you get into the playoffs. It's right there for them. If the Canucks stay reasonably healthy and continue to get strong goaltending, they have a very good chance of playing springtime hockey for the first time since 2015. Very delayed global sports. Okay, there is fallout from the Canucks last game, which of course was when Winnipeg beat them 4 to nothing. Jets forward Matthew Perot is still very angry that a Jake Furtanen elbow in the first period was not called during the game, and he's also angry the NHL isn't doing anything to Vertanen about it either. Player safety my ass. Like This is literally a elbow to the face to a guy that didn't have the puck. I see him coming, I brace for a hit. It was a late hit, I never had the puck, and he flicks his elbow to my face, and they're, and they're not going to do anything about it. So now i got to take matters in my own hand next time this happens, and I get, I get to swing my stick across his, his forehead, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't get suspended then. 
there if the league's not going to protect me, then I'm the smallest guy on the ice, so I can't really fight anybody. So the, the only thing I can do to defend myself is, is use my stick. So the next guy that does that to me, he's going to get my f***ing stick. And I better not get suspended for it. He's sensitive to it, rightfully so, but even if he hadn't had a, an injury, that that's not right. Really disappointed because the headshots are... Uh, I thought that one was quite easy to see. He's also angry because he had a concussion earlier in the year. Also in that game, Jets goalie Connor Hellebuck wanted the rare double of a shutout, shutout make that, and also scoring a goal himself. When the Canucks pulled Jacob Markstrom, Hellebuck tried to score, but Bo Horvat blocked the shot. Being shut out is bad enough, but the goalie scoring two, it was not going to happen on Bo Horvat's watch. Passes ahead for Miller. Off his stick. Here's Hellebuck. They want him to take a shot at it. Down by it's just one of those things, you know, uh, as soon as it got to him, everybody was yelling, shoot, and wanted to try to get a stick on it, and uh, thankfully I did. That was pretty much the most perfect opportunity you'll ever get. It stops right there. I could skate up and do it. The only problem was the puck turned on me a little bit. Was that going in if he didn't get out of the air? To be honest, I don't think so, but it definitely had the height. It didn't really have the power because it kind of turned up on me, so I didn't get everything into it. I don't know if I had the power, but it had the height. Flames and Leafs tonight, so if the Flames win this game, they move into a first-place tie with Arizona. They're up 1-0, but Toronto will tie William Nylander in the third period. So, no more goals until the shootout, and there was only one goal in the shootout. It's Zach Cassian's favorite player, Matthew Kachuk, and Calgary gets a 2-1 win, so they're now tied with Arizona for first in the Pacific. The uh, Whitecaps signed Canadian-born left-back Christian Gutierrez, who was playing in Chile. He was actually born in Montreal, but moved to Chile at the age of three. He's 22 now. The Whitecaps are gathering a lot of Canadians for this season. Gutierrez has played five years in Chile's top league. All right, PGA stop this week is the American Express from Palm Springs. And Merritt Rogers Sloan on the 18th gets the birdie. He's at minus six. He is tied for six. Two shots off the lead. Abbotsford's Nick Taylor okay. is at minus five. He is tied. Here's your snow report for this evening. Lots of new snow over the last several days. The bases are really piling up now. Whistler Blackcomb picked up an incredible 41 centimeters over the last 24 hours. Grouse 7, Cypress 10, and Sasquatch 10. Manning Park picked up 6 centimeters. Revelstoke 13, Fernie 12, Kicking Horse 5, Big White 18 new, Silver Star 4, Sun Peaks 5, and Apex 23. Mount Washington is a winner today at 46 centimeters. Whitewater 15, Red Mountain to nine and powder king is pretty cold at minus 30. coming up on et canada nothing but winners as we preview the 40th survivor season winners at war plus the gentleman stars hugh grant and charlie hunnam talk royals social media and curse words that's coming up at seven right after the news hour back to you all right thanks carlos well many parents know how nerve-wracking it can be when their baby grows up and gets their driver's license. I'm, I'm not looking forward to that. <laughs> you have a few years before I do, that happens. I do. But a Wisconsin mother and father know the feeling all too well. Times four. Every teen's rite of passage quadrupled because the Costco quadruplets just got their driver's licenses. And you are how old? 16. Zach, Rachel, Ellie, and Sarah were a lot smaller back in 2003. They've graduated from car seats to the driver's seat. All passing their driver's tests here in Wintry, Ladysmith, Wisconsin. And like all good kids, they take turns driving to and from school, rotating who gets to sit behind the wheel. 
if Zach drives, then Rachel's in the front and then they switch. And then if Ellie drives, I'm in the front and then we switch. Who's the biggest backseat driver? <laughs> For mom and dad, it's been quite a ride. And next thing you know, they're graduating from eighth grade and boom, we're 10th grade and we're getting our driver's, driver's license. license. So what's easier, toddlers or teens? We'll take teething toddlers over, <laughs> over teenagers any day. I'll, I'll take the teenagers. <laughs> Happy motoring, kids. Whose turn is it to buy the gas? Kevin Tibbles, NBC News, Ladysmith, Wisconsin. You can split the gas four ways. That's the benefit, I guess. <laughs> that is a good point. Mm -hmm. Or an electric car. Yeah. Good point. Love it, pass. Squire. What's four that? Love it. <laughs> four, four bus passes. Okay, be careful out there tonight. Roads aren't quite clear yet. Yeah, it's snow tomorrow morning on top of what, you know, the melt that we saw today could refreeze as well. All right, good night.